This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was another losing season for the Broncos, and Coach Vance Joseph is out. But in the near future, you could bet on whether they'll win the Super Bowl. Sports wagers are likely coming to Colorado. A Supreme Court decision allows states to set up sports betting. And Colorado is expected to tackle the issue in the upcoming legislative session. CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus joins us to talk about the details. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah. Can you explain a bit about how we got here? So back in 1992, Congress passed a law that effectively banned most sports wagers everywhere but Nevada. Former New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley, who had run for president, was a former pro basketball player. He yeah. championed that law, saying at the time it was needed to protect the integrity of the games. 25 years later now, the state of New Jersey took a case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they successfully challenged the law, convincing the justices that this was a state's rights issue. The Supreme Court agreed. They over Turned it. Now, any state in the nation that wants to allow sports betting can. Uh, about half a dozen have already done so. Okay, or they can keep things as they are. Several Colorado lawmakers have expressed interest in sponsoring a sports gambling bill in the new session. What will sports betting look like here, do you think? We're not entirely sure. We don't have the bill language yet, but there does seem to be a consensus around using a mobile application of some sort. So you could make these wagers from your phone. And this is important because they really want to break the black market. In the black market now, you can bet online. And so if you can't do sports wagers online, then what is the likelihood that you're more apt to go drive up to Blackhawk or drive to the racetrack in Aurora and make that bet in person? So that a mobile app seems to be uh, an important factor for them. And that's that's also important because some of the studies about the revenue that can come from sports gaming, they say you can double the amount of revenue if you have a mobile interface just because it's that much easier. There should be more people who want to use it. One of the other issues they want to tackle is they want to keep taxes low. So in order to break the black market, if the taxes are too high, mm. people won't make sports wagers in the legal market. They'll continue to use the illegal market. There's a wrinkle in this story, and it's that uh, there's a history of warring sides you mentioned the casinos and that horse track in Aurora. Will that bad blood have an effect on sports gambling in Colorado? I think maybe it will. Uh, the casinos are confined by state law to a select few mountain towns, and they have fought any attempts to expand gambling outside of those areas. And that's important, right? Because if there's easy gambling in metro locations, what is the incentive to drive up to Blackhawk or Cripple Creek? Uh, so a few years ago, these two sides battled the, one of the most expensive campaigns in Colorado history. The racetrack was trying to expand casino games uh. in Aurora. The casinos successfully fought them back. Now, it seems the lawmakers that are thinking about sports gambling, they understand this history. I think they want to make sure that both sides get a chance at sports gambling and so that we don't have a big war between the two of them. That is to say somehow the racetrack and the casinos in the mountains would be in on this. And I've actually heard that negotiations between those two sides have actually progressed. And how would they be connected to the app? Yes, that's a good question. So you would go to the brick and mortar, either casino or the track. You would register to verify your age and your identity. Uh -huh. And then that app would be connected to their servers at the brick and mortar store. Oh, OK. So that's how they get in on it. Would they be the sole purveyors of this app then? I don't know, versus some state-run app? Yeah, so I would pick whether it's the casino or the track that I'd want to go and place my wager with. Got it. Go get my age verified, my identity, and then I would be signed up for their service. Now, how big could sports gambling get in Colorado? Are we talking, you know, billions of dollars in sales like marijuana? 
Probably not. Operators in Nevada who've been doing this for a long time, they tell me it's a very low profit business, that it's less than 5%, 2% profit margins on some of this stuff, because um, you're kind of a middleman. And so it's really, it's not that big. It's not going to be something that breaks the budget or helps the budget. It's going to be pretty small. And again, the idea is to keep taxes low so that you don't encourage people to use the black market. I mean, I remember one of the gubernatorial candidates in this last election, Republican Walker Stapleton, unsuccessful candidate, hoping that the the money, the influx of cash could help pay for roads, for instance. Not likely to be a road. Okay, (laughs) We're talking billions of dollars in transportation backlogs in the state of Colorado, and we're talking maybe tens of millions for the whole industry of sports gambling. Okay, so this may come up in the legislative session, but my understanding is it's not just the legislature that might have to get involved because there's the state constitution to deal with. As almost always the case in Colorado, there's a constitution to deal with. Um, So the casinos that are in the mountain towns, they are allowed by um, the constitution. And it's very specific what games are allowed there. And so some people believe that you would need a statewide vote to even allow sports gambling in those casinos. Um, It's not exactly clear. Some lawmakers think that they can pass this without going to the voters. But because no matter what they pass, it's going to have the tax attached to it. That will go to a statewide vote because the taxpayer's bill of rights exactly Ah. requires all taxes go to voters. Of course, there could be some sort of lawsuit that forces the legislature to go to the people in any case if there are those who disagree. There's a thought that there could be lawyers involved. (laughs) Okay. What's the timeline on this, do you think, Ben? So – We have a legislative session coming up. Assuming it clears the session and gets referred to the ballot, a tax question would be in November, maybe January 2020. You might be betting on football or curling. Or baseball. Anything you want. Any curling? Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much, Ryan. CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus on sports wagers likely coming to Colorado. You can now walk into a grocery store and buy full-strength beer. The state law that kept non-liquor stores from selling malt beverages stronger than 3.2% was repealed last legislative session, and the new regime went into effect New Year's Day. Buying alcohol in grocery stores has been a reality for a while in much of the rest of the country. It's just that historically, Colorado has been a little behind the curve on this. Thomas Kova teaches courses on beer and brewing history at Colorado State University, and he's with us from Fort Collins with The Long View. Hi, Thomas. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. I'd love to start with who first began brewing beer in Colorado. That's a long story, but, um, you know, mostly immigrants uh, in the 19th century, mid-19th century. Uh, most of the brewers were actually Germans. Um and the Germans have a long tradition of brewing beer. And the first brewery in Colorado was in 1859, Denver, uh, Rocky Mountain Brewery. And most of the brewers, like, you know, Adolf Kors, you know, were coming from Germany. Uh, you know, it's the same with Anderson Bush uh, coming from, from Germany. So uh, Germans were very, very influential in brewing, uh, brewing technique and breweries in Colorado in the mid-19th century. What kind of beer were they brewing back then? Is it something we'd recognize? Uh, yes and no. Uh, Germans were fond of uh, lager and pilsner and, uh, you know, Adolf Kors, the first uh, beer he brew was a recipe he bought from a, a Czech uh, pilsner. So it was a pilsner lager, something very different from, uh, you know, the British, the Belgian, we're more into ales. 
So Lager, um, you know, low alcohol beer, actually not too far from the 3.2 beer that uh, we uh, used to drink, <laughs> which is also actually something that people were drinking in the Middle Ages, right? In the, you know, almost 1,000 years ago, people were uh, drinking this near beer, very low alcohol beer, uh, so very close to the 3.2 beer. Near beer was beer. Okay, so the, the 18th Amendment was ratified, I'll note, in January 1919. So we're talking 100 years ago. And yes. it prohibited, of course, the sale and manufacture of alcohol in the U.S. But Colorado was already dry at that point, correct? Indeed, indeed. Uh, Colorado went dry in 1916. The, the law was passed in 1915 during the war. And by 1916, all Colorado was dry. But some cities were even, uh, you know, dry uh, in the late 19th century. For example, Fort Collins, Greeley, Northern Colorado. They went dry in 1896, so 20 years before Colorado went dry. So Colorado has a very long history of prohibition and, uh, and the limitation of alcohol. My goodness, a difference a century makes. Why was the state so anti-booze back then, do you think? Well, in 1950, 1916, we're in the middle of uh, the war, so the U.S. were not into the war yet. But in 1916, 1917, when the U.S. entered the war, you had this vision that we should limit uh, the consumption of alcohol and the fact that some people, for example, the, the temperance movement, used the argument that uh, brewers were German and the Germans were supporting the, the Kaiser, the German, uh, you know, Kaiser. So there was this argument that drinking beer was not patriotic in 1917, 1918. In Colorado, you had this uh, religious argument and the fact that uh, you have this progressive view that drinking alcohol was um, against progress. So you had a lot of people defending that prohibition was actually progress. And in, the, in Fort Collins, for example, you had the Women Temperance and Christian Union who was supporting prohibition. And uh, in 1893, uh, when uh, women got the right to vote, uh, this argument was even stronger. So in 1896 in Fort Collins, there was this law uh, banning the consumption of alcohol, also because of this uh, new right for women to vote and to defend the Women uh, Christian Temperance Union. Of course, prohibition uh, was repealed, but it continued, especially in northern Colorado, long past the repeal of the 18th Amendment. It did. I mean, you had this temporary solution in 1933 uh, to create the 3.2 beer to speed up uh, the, the, the end of prohibition because the end of prohibition in 1933 would require every state to pass the law. So um, in March 1933... To speed up the process, the decision was taken to um, make 3.2 beer uh, intoxicated, not intox intoxicated beer, to speed up the process. So 3.2 beer was created in March 1933. But Colorado was, uh, had a long history of prohibition. So when the, uh, the end of prohibition you know, was, was provided, um, yeah. it was decided that every town could decide if they wanted to end prohibition or not. And in northern Colorado, most of the towns uh, kept prohibition. Fort Collins, Grayley, Boulder uh, remained dry until the late 1960s. So it's very, you know, when we think about Colorado today, it's about craft, it's about microbreweries. But in, until the late 1960s, most of the, you know, uh, northern Colorado town were dry, uh, which is surprising when you, when you tell that to people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think of Fort Collins as the headquarters of New Belgium, and uh, here it was... 
uh, a, a dry town for all those years. And I understand there was something of a, a beer inn in, I think, the 1960s. Some college students in northern Colorado said enough is enough. It was. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, all you could get in Fort Collins was a 3.2 beer. Uh-huh. But on Colorado State campus, it was even worse because even the 3.2 beer was not allowed. Uh, in the 1960s, students started to, um, to uh, you know, uh, to try to, uh, to change that. And in 1968, yes, you had what we call a beer in, uh, in which some students decided that they wanted to uh, break the law and, and drink beer to show that they wanted to have a voice uh, on campus. It was not only about beer, it was about student rights, it was about having their voice uh, heard by the, on campus. So they decided in October uh, 1968 to have this beer in uh, on campus in a student union and to drink course. Um, and that led to the end of prohibition in Fort Collins in April 1969. But it's not too long ago. It's, it's you know, it's uh, 40, uh, almost, yeah, f- almost 50 years ago. So it's not long ago. Now, we should be clear that this is before the age is 21 to be able to drink alcohol, just so that we understand the history there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Corrado moved to 19, in 1988, the age of, uh, of drinking beer and alcohol at 21. So th- this is just fascinating that Colorado goes from such strict conservative views on alcohol to becoming really what some call the Napa Valley of craft beer in just the last few seconds would would you say there's one person or one moment that's most important to changing that well the the 1960s were 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 very important because you see a change in Fort Collins and northern colorado so many students coming to csu you you have the you know the rise of tourism so people start thinking again about the end of prohibition and and beer becomes becomes more connected to economy and, and to this rise in, in northern Colorado. So that's definitely a big change. But it's not the craft revolution yet, because when we talk about New Belgium, Odell, all these big craft breweries, it's in the late 1980s, right? So it's 20 years after the end of prohibition in uh, in Fort Collins and northern Colorado. Thomas Covin is an assistant professor at CSU who teaches courses on beer and brewing history. We're in the final days of Governor John Hickenlooper's administration, so this week we examine his legacy. That'll culminate Friday with our last in-depth interview with him as governor. We'll meet at the brewery he started in downtown Denver before he began his political career. Today, though, Hickenlooper's relationship with rural Colorado. While his supporters and detractors debate the effect of his decisions... His administration has given tens of millions of dollars in grants, loans, and tax incentives to help create jobs. CPR's Nathaniel Miner visited a county in southern Colorado to see the results. If you've never been to a modern sawmill, it is a sight to behold. Stacks and stacks of lumber are fed onto a conveyor. That carries them under a saw blade the size of a tractor tire. Okay, I have to ask, what's going on up here? That's where the logs are getting processed to go into the mill. It is a big chop saw. That's what cuts all the logs and the legs to go into the mill. The mill, Blanca Forestry Products, opened in 2017. It's just a few miles from a mountain with the same name. Ty Ryland is my guide. This is where we finish it to size. 
So all of this that we're running today is a one by four spruce product, eight foot long. This mill was built to process lumber from the nearby Trinchera Ranch that Ryland manages. Its 268 square miles are chock full of overgrown lumber, so it's been thinned out. The ranch's billionaire owner spent $43 million on the mill, and the state pitched in more than a million in grants and loans for road improvements nearby. Ryland says the state's been supportive since day one. I think... Without the state's involvement, it would have been difficult to do this. The State Department of Local Affairs gave out $10 million in grants last fiscal year, much of that for rural economic development. Another state agency, the Office of Economic Development and International Trade, estimates it issues tens of millions of dollars per year in tax credits, grants, and loans. It takes credit for the creation and retention of some 30,000 jobs. Henry Sobene was Governor Hickenlooper's budget director for nearly eight years. Rural Colorado is going through the same problems that the rest of rural America is going through. You have people moving away, and then uh, on top of it, you have an aging population. Sobene says the state tried to do a number of things to help. There's no one button to push, and so we tried to address this issue the way we could. But some rural Republicans see these incentives differently. DOLA is this slush fund that the governor has where he can pick and choose who he wants to give an extra bonus to and who he wants to withhold that from. This is outgoing state senator Kevin Lundberg from northern Colorado. He says the state should be spending its money not on individual projects, but on infrastructure that would benefit entire regions. If you want to be a blessing to rural Colorado, well, the first priority ought to be to provide good roads And Colorado is not known for that. But when it comes to individual projects, Kevin Wilkins with the San Luis Valley Development Resources Group says state help can be hugely important. Incentives are a tipping point on whether or not you do a project. It it fills a gap. It it, it meets a need that might not otherwise been met, that if not met, the project will not go forward. Wilkins says he's happy with what Governor Hickenlooper did for rural Colorado, and he hopes that Governor-elect Jared Polis does more. And Costilla County needs all the economic activity it can get. It's one of the poorest parts of the state. About 30 percent of the population here lives below the poverty line. The mill has 70 workers. County Administrator Ben Dune says that may not sound like much, but it's a big deal in a county where there are less than 2,000 people in the labor force. And while you're right, 80 to 100 jobs in Denver may be peanuts. It's a huge impact on the unemployment percentage and the population here. Those employees make between $14 and $25 an hour. One of them is Manuela Dorado. She worked as a receptionist in Colorado Springs for a few years, but she wanted to get back to the San Luis Valley, where she grew up. She says she probably couldn't have done that without her job at the mill. Um, It gives a lot of people here opportunities for jobs and have a stable life. So I think this is a really good opportunity for a lot of people here. The debate over how to help rural Colorado is sure to continue long past when Governor Hickenlooper leaves office next week. But at least in this corner of Christia County, the state's million dollars of help seems to have made a big difference. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Okay, overall, Colorado's economy is strong, but how much credit can the governor take for that? Back now is CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. We have these three big TVs in our newsroom. They're tuned to national news. And lately, it's common to look up and see Hickenlooper on the screen, usually talking about jobs. I think to go the last two years, we're the number one economy in America. Uh, And I I have an opportunity to 
Take what we've done in Colorado. We went from 40th in job creation to the number one economy in the country. Saying, look how great Colorado is. You're number one economy in the country. And that's a good thing. You know, I love talking about how great Colorado is. He really does. But this does raise a question. Uh, do governors generally have that much of an impact on the economy? And No. <laughs> That's Andrew Friedson, an economist at CU Denver. He says people and companies are moving here and creating jobs for reasons that have nothing to do with Hickenlooper. They're here for the airport, the mountains, the educated workforce, the climate. Right. The worst possible story you can tell about him is he lucked into something and stayed out of the way. But when it comes to legacy projects, the kind of thing that leaves a lasting impact on the economy, you have to go back to something a lot of voters may not even realize he was responsible for passing a tax to build the light rail system. If you vote yes on 4A and the Fast Tracks plan, it could change the way you start your day. In 2004, as mayor of Denver, a much younger-looking Hickenlooper filmed this ad. He never speaks in it. It just shows him get on a train and read a newspaper and look out the window. So why stay stuck in the past when you can move smoothly into the future? And Friedson, the economist, says if you're looking for the best possible story about Hickenlooper's lasting impact on the economy. It has to be that he prevented us from getting into this top tier of congestion. Traffic. It's pretty bad, but Friedson says Denver is much better than cities like Atlanta and Los Angeles. And despite its many problems, congestion would certainly be worse without fast tracks. Of course, Hickenlooper failed to pass a transportation tax as governor, and he leaves office with $10 billion in road and bridge project backlogs. But that didn't seem to slow the economy. It's booming, and that's still a feather in Hickenlooper's cap. I think politicians live and die with the economy, and it's probably a little unfair on both the ends of that deal. Henry Sobonet was Hickenlooper's budget director. He says the governor deserves a lot of credit for managing the state through the Great Recession really had to take the reins of, of state government and the budget to be ready for if there more bad news continued, but also get ready for uh, a recovery. Sobonet admits there aren't a lot of sexy projects as governor that will define his legacy. But Hickenlooper cut some red tape for businesses. He helped alter the hospital provider fee, which allowed billions of dollars to flow, especially to rural communities. And he brought big companies to Colorado. He directly contributed to that, and he made it a priority. Hickenlooper convinced Aero Electronics, a Fortune 500 company, to leave New York for Colorado. Tom Clark used to run the Metro Denver Chamber of Commerce. And a Fortune 500 company is, is the bomb for people in our world. The bigger the company, the more other companies want to cluster around it, amplifying job creation. Clark says Hickenlooper played a key part in those relocations, like when he charmed Charles Schwab into housing thousands of his workers here. That was based on a personal relationship that John Hickenlooper made with Chuck. And Chuck liked Colorado, but he mostly liked John Hickenlooper. Others are more skeptical about the impact of a thousand jobs here, a thousand jobs there. Martin Shields is an economist at CSU. Bringing a new corporation into the state doesn't mean that much when the state itself is averaging 60,000, 70,000 jobs a year in, in new job creation. And since Colorado schools don't turn out enough highly educated workers, these jobs are often filled by transplants. Hickenlooper admits that a lack of homegrown, educated workers is a threat to the future economy. But in 2013, the governor failed to pass a major tax to beef up public education. Shields says still, Hickenlooper has plenty to brag about. Well, it's, it's hard to ignore how well the economy's done 
over the last five years. And if he makes a run for president, Hickenlooper will definitely talk up Colorado's economy, even if he doesn't deserve all the credit. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Still to come, conquering the Don Wall. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in this soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The world watched in 2015 as rock climbers Tommy Caldwell of Estes Park and his partner Kevin Jorgensen did the unimaginable. Inch by nerve-wracking itch, using only their fingertips to grasp razor-sharp edges... Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen attempt the hardest climb in the world. No one has ever free climbed the Dawn Wall. 3,000 feet of straight up granite. The two men became the first to free climb the Dawn Wall, the smoothest part of a 3,000 foot rock in Yosemite called El Capitan. And by smoothest, I mean to most of us, it looks like there's nothing to hold on to. Their feet is the subject of a recent documentary. Filmmaker Josh Lowell got extraordinary access. I spoke with him in September, along with legendary climber Tommy Caldwell. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Tommy, you worked for years to climb the Dawn Wall. What was it about this rock that became such an obsession? I mean, I just want to note that before you climbed it for real, you spent a year swinging around it, just looking for a route up. Whoa. Why were you so focused on this rock? Yeah, about a year searching out the route and then six more years actually trying to become a better climber to make it work. Yeah, for me, it was it was just a matter of this was a place that I could be an explorer. Being up on a giant rock face and living up on the wall for months on end is incredibly challenging, incredibly exciting. And since I had a good friend up there with Kevin Jorgensen, incredibly fun. Um, you know, and, and we really were. We were like exploring an aspect of climbing that nobody had yet. And I think that was where the intrigue, it was about curiosity. When you say explorer, I mean, I think of like the great early explorers who crossed seas to find new lands. Did you think of yourself as sort of in that category? 
I'm a huge fan of you know adventure literature, things like uh, like the Shackleton story. Um, so this was a different scale, obviously, but we were learning how to live on the side of a rock face for weeks on end and perform at an athletically really high level. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really a remarkable thing to think about living on a rock face. And so you are climbing all day and at night you're in what appear to be these precariously hanging tents, these portal ledges uh, that are actually quite secure. But it's this it's dizzying for those of us, I think, who aren't familiar with this world. I want to say that it's called the Don Wall because in the morning the sun slowly creeps down the wall. So it looks like it's it's lighting up. And Tommy, the, the film starts with you and your mom reminiscing about your childhood. As a kid, Tommy was slow at everything. He had a lot of difficulty in school. The teachers actually at one point told us that he was mentally retarded and would never learn. I was like developmentally delayed through probably still. <laughs> um, I was this very fragile little kid, incredibly shy. It's surprising because it seems that there's nothing fragile about you today. Do you think that might have actually propelled you? I mean, did you have something to prove as a result? <laughs> yeah, I love the uh, the clip that you chose. <laughs> um, yeah, um, you know, I think that it had an effect because my parents understood that they needed to really try and strengthen me because I was quite fragile. So I think I spent my whole childhood going out in the mountains and doing these very, very adventurous things because they were looking for ways to build confidence within me. And that's, you know, that was the world they lived in. And so they really believed that the outdoors and climbing could do that, which worked, you know, it worked really well. And it also led to everything that I do now. I mean, I, I grew a huge love for being outside and being up in the mountains. And, you know, I've, I've always been dealing with sort of scary circumstances from the time I was quite a young child. And so, um, yeah, I'm kind of addicted to that in a way. Ha. Uh, indeed, the film explores the role your father plays in that sense of adventure. He was a climber. I think he was a bodybuilder, too. And he just put you in these situations that uh, were pretty terrifying and said, figure it out, kid, you know? Yeah, he kind of said figure it out, but he really walked me through it. Like he he viewed it in this way that if you're going to if you're going to prepare your, your child for the world, you know, he he was like the kind of father that wanted to pr prepare the child for the path and not the path of the child. Oh. I want to play some sounds that you hear consistently throughout the film. <laughs> It's the frustration of climbing because you bust your hump, Tommy, getting up a pitch, you know, a, sec a section of climb, only to fall and have to start that section over again. And Josh, you show the constant work Tommy puts into his climbing. You have experts throughout the film talking about why he's a legend. Uh, Josh, how would you describe what makes him the best? Well, I think um, a large part of the film talks about not just the climb itself, but Tommy's life and all the things that he's gone through in his life that have led him to the point of becoming obsessed with this climb. It's the big theme is overcoming obstacles. I mean, starting from being a frail child, as he was just describing and figuring out, you know, his dad going on this mission to toughen him up, 
getting into his experience of being kidnapped in Kyrgyzstan and learning how to use that as a source of strength, uh, losing his finger and having to come back stronger from that. I mean, it's just this incredible strength of character, his optimism, humility, and hard work. Uh, you know, it comes from inside. When you look at Tommy, he doesn't look like a superhero. He looks like a normal guy walking down the street. But yet his determination and optimism and willingness to dream big and never give up, that's the mental strength that I think makes all of this possible. I also think it's what makes this not just a movie about climbing, but the Don Wall, uh, the documentary, really about so much more, including indeed the kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan. Tommy, I wonder if you'd talk briefly about that harrowing trip. This was with your girlfriend at the time, Beth. And uh, I'll play a a clip from the film in a moment about how you eventually escaped. But uh, just briefly, what happened to you? Uh, Yeah, it was my first big international climbing expedition when I was 21 years old. And we went to Kyrgyzstan, a really remote, remote mountain region in Kyrgyzstan, and ended up finding ourselves in the middle of this like little war that broke out. We got kidnapped by a rebel group called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, and we were held hostage for six days. And we eventually escaped when I pushed one of our captors, um, our one remaining captor at that point, off a cliff. And then we ran six miles down valley to a Kyrgyz military outpost. You were alerted to the fact that you were in danger by the presence of gunshots, and you realized that they were firing in your direction. I think you really didn't eat or drink for much of those six days. Uh, It must have just been awful. Yeah, yeah. We were camped in our portal edges, our little hanging cots a thousand feet up the wall when we were taken hostage. So, yeah, they use these kind of long range assault rifles to shoot up at us and warn us or, you know, tell us to come down. And yeah, we didn't have any food or water. We we were able to get to rivers occasionally during those six days, but no food for six days. We were on the verge of hypothermia. I mean, this was intense at a level that almost nobody experiences in life. And you know, in, in a lot of ways, it was a really hard experience that took me a while to recover from, but it also showed me what we're capable of. I mean, we had to endure so much. And in the long run, that was a very empowering thing to know that we can outlast and we can have so much strength when things are so difficult. I'm glad you said that, Tommy Caldwell, because it's a line that I actually wrote down as I watched the film. We are capable of so much more than we could ever really imagine. I kept thinking about my own life, like, what is it I could achieve that I don't even think I could achieve? Uh, I think this film will put the viewer in that mindset. So so here's you talking in the film about what you did to get away from uh, one of your captors. So I just ran up behind him and I put one hand on his back and grabbed his gun strap. And my other hand went on his chest and I just gave a push... to send him flying off this cliff. We saw him hit a ledge, bounce off of it, and just fall out of sight into the darkness. And you were in tears after you had to do that to save your life and the lives of those with you. You questioned your decision to do what you did. You were racked by guilt. How do you see it now? You know, at the time, that rebel that I pushed, he was like an 18-year-old hired mercenary. I saw him as a victim of his own circumstance. He didn't seem like an evil man. And so, yeah, I was, I was messed up. I was pretty torn about the whole thing. And I would say today, 
I still feel quite bad about that. But I also have come to an understanding that that's what we had to do. Like we most likely either would have died up there on the mountain or we would have, you know, made it to some sort of camp for the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and held hostage who knows how long. Uh, so, you know, I, I was racked by guilt for a while, but now I'm, yeah, I, I still have that, but now I feel like I'm more empowered by the whole thing. Shall we say what, what happened to him or leave that for the film? Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay. We'll give a, we'll give people a moment to turn down their radios if they so, so choose. Go ahead, Josh. Well, it turned out, um, in the end, some journalists investigating the story discovered that um, the captor that Tommy pushed actually had survived the fall. And um, I think that, as Tommy described, he was still deeply conflicted by knowing that he had made that decision. But in the end, realizing that the man had survived, uh, I think was quite a relief. I should say, Tommy, that you are perhaps the world's best climber, despite the fact that when you were in your 20s, you had a, a bad accident. You were with your girlfriend, Beth, at the time. Let's listen. About a year after Kyrgyzstan, we were remodeling this, like, tiny little cabin. And Tommy was using his parents' old table saw. Tommy did something that he should never do, which is he tried to pull a small piece of wood through the table saw. Beth finds her finger, but ultimately they are unable to reattach it. And according to the film, a doctor tells you you will never climb again. Was, was Did you take that to be like a dare, Tommy? Yeah, you know, I did in the end. Um, and part of that was Beth really just looking at me and being like, that doctor has no idea what you're capable of. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those that, – that part of my life was kind of driven by these – these worries, like climbing was all I had after Kyrgyzstan. It was my way to cope with Kyrgyzstan. And then I thought I was going to lose that. And, you know, because of the support and kind of the way that I was raised, I was able to turn that around and actually find strength from it. And ironically, losing my finger became the catalyst for the biggest period of growth. Like if that wouldn't have happened, I, you know, I probably never would have succeeded that well as a professional rock climber. Huh. We're talking about the new documentary, The Dawn Wall, and I'd like to talk about the actual climb. It's painstaking. Josh, briefly set the scene for us. It's, it's the winter of 2015, and what's ahead of these two men? Well, they've spent six to seven years practicing the climb. Tommy had to basically come up with this concept to visualize the idea that it could even be possible to climb this 3,000-foot section of wall that, as you said earlier, looks completely blank. No one had conceived that it could be free-climbed, that is to climb it with just your hands and your feet. The ropes are there for safety, but they don't help you actually get up the wall. So then once his partner, Kevin, joined him, they spent six years attempting it, failing repeatedly, figuring out piece by piece exactly how to do it. And they started up the wall on December 27th, just a couple days after Christmas. And... Um, they, were, they would end up spending 19 days living on the wall, climbing it section by section, falling repeatedly, and there was some big drama that unfolded during the climb itself, and it turns out that uh, all these relationship issues between Tommy and Kevin come to the fore, yeah. and it was a, it was a spectacular, spectacular uh, 
drama playing out in real time. And one or both of them catch colds. I, I just found that remarkable. Like, I'm, I'm such a bad, sick person, and you were doing <laughs> the most incredible feat with colds. Yeah. What, do, what do your hands begin to look like after 19 days of the most intense climbing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, the skin on our fingertips was really like what was going to make or break the, you know, our success up there. So um, they get beat up tremendously. I mean, the, the knuckles are bloody. The, um, you know, the, the environment is so dry up there that you're, you get these really thick calluses that sometimes can crack and start bleeding. And so we're constantly trying to deal with that. Um, you know, we're doing triage up there, really trying to keep our skin in as best shape it can be. Amazing. Do you have a big new goal? Just briefly. Uh, yeah, not, I mean, nothing like the Donwall. That kind of stuff doesn't come around every day. But climbing is my food. I'm out there um, climbing all over the world. Climbing is my food. I think that's my favorite line. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Estes Park native Tommy Caldwell and Josh Lowell of Sender Films in Boulder. Tommy kicks off the 22nd Winter Words series at the Aspen Institute next Tuesday. He'll talk about his memoir, The Push, A Climber's Search for the Path. Geese are the subject of Colorado Wonders this time, our project to answer your questions about this state. And today's question comes from Dave Stewart of Denver. I see just what seems like an ungodly amount of geese in the sky. And I've just been curious now, three years running, of like, where are all these geese coming from and how do we have so many well, CPR's Joella Bauman, our Max Weisick News Fellow, has been researching geese in Colorado to answer this question and joins me. Hi, Joella. Hi, Ryan. Before you answer Dave's question, uh, settle this debate. Is it Canada geese or Canadian geese? So it's Canada geese, um, at least prescriptively. Um, people call them Canadian geese, but a lot of them have immigrated to the lower 48 and some have never even been to Canada, so okay. they're not Canadian. <laughs> So to Dave's experience, do we have a lot of geese in this state? Uh, maybe it's just something about where he lives in particular. Yeah. Migrant geese hit Colorado in late October, and their numbers explode because they aren't going anywhere once they get here. Dave did wonder if there was something special about his part of town, and that's possible. Geese are drawn to lakes and ponds, and Dave lives near Cherry Creek Reservoir, uh. and that's prime habitat. But really, a lot of the metro area has what geese need. Where are these geese actually coming from? Some of them, indeed, leaving Canada for the winter, I gather, and coming to Colorado to hang out for the season? Yeah, the geese migrate from Canada. They could end up farther south than us if they wanted, but they'll only travel as far as they need to. So many end up in Colorado. What about Colorado attracts geese? So once again, water, but in particular water that doesn't freeze so they can roost at night. Also, geese won't travel far from their roosting site to graze, and short manicured grass is by and large what they eat. This makes our parks extremely accommodating. Lastly, they come to prefer parks because they're safe from hunting. Certainly they don't face hunters in the city. No. Um, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 makes it a federal crime to harm geese in any way, unless it's hunting season. I spoke with Jim Gammonley. He's an avian researcher with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and he says that hunting geese is big business along the Front Range and on the Eastern Plains. Obviously, you can't run around the city shooting geese, and Gammonley said geese are pretty savvy to that. 
once the hunting season gets going and the and the geese get down here, they learn fairly quickly that if they just move into town, they can avoid being hunted. And so we get concentrations of birds in the city. Exactly how many geese are we talking about? Quite a few, actually. So we have what's called our resident goose population, and then we have our migrant goose population. Before the 1950s, when a huge effort was made to boost geese numbers, Colorado had maybe a couple hundred resident geese. And those were only here because using geese as live decoys was banned and some hunters released them into the wild. Anyhow, overhunting in the early 1900s nearly eliminated Canada geese across the U.S. So eggs and goslings were placed in many states with good habitat to increase their numbers. And it seems like that worked. Yeah, today we have somewhere around 12,000 resident geese. And Vicky Vargas Madrid, the wildlife specialist for Denver Parks and Rec, said the goal is now to keep growth stable by oiling eggs. That's coating eggs with something like corn oil to prevent oxygen from reaching the embryo. Also, it is worth noting that many of these geese move farther out of the city into areas that would have been rural in the 50s and 60s because that's where they were placed as eggs are young. But there are tons of geese in the parks in the winter, and I'm guessing that these are our migrant geese. Yes. Vargas Madrid said across the metro area, they haze geese with something called a goosinator to try and get them to migrate farther south. A goosinator. It's a huge foam-looking white machine that looks like a predator. It's painted in fluorescent orange color with a ugly face painted on it to scare the geese. We run it with a remote control to haze the geese off of our park properties. I saw the goosinator out at Wash Park, and the geese were definitely giving it a wide berth, but we still have an average of 180,000 geese that spend the winter here. Why are they staying in greater numbers? Well, I guess you could call it a success story gone a little awry. As the migrant population continues to grow, because all these geese we've encouraged, they're saturating the landscape along their migratory route, which stays the same year after year, and they travel further south in greater numbers. And further south might mean Colorado. Uh, How does climate change play into all of this? Colorado has definitely seen a warming trend. I spoke with Clint Skelly, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Pueblo, who said we've seen just under half a degree of warming every decade since the mid-50s. That might affect how long our lakes and ponds stay frozen or how quickly they thaw, but apparently not enough to affect goose migration patterns. So this isn't bad news for the geese. They're thriving after all. But there are complaints. Yeah, like this one from Karen Treeweiler, who lives in Wash Park and actually likes the geese, but... I think if there was less poop, that would be fantastic. I learned how much they generate, and it's a lot. A goose will consume around four pounds of grass a day, then redeposit half of that. So that's two pounds of poop a day. For one goose. And I I can't get this figure out of my mind. A goose poops every 12 minutes. Yeah. The other complaint is about aggressive geese. These complaints typically come in the summer because that's when geese molt. They lose all their flight feathers at once and regrow them. So during this time, they can't flee. So they will charge you if you get too close to their nest or they feel threatened. Uh, Back to Dave Stewart, who submitted his question through Colorado Wonders. He was also concerned about geese and air traffic, you know, airplane engines. Yeah, I checked that out. The geese aren't the problem. But it turns out DIA is one of the top airports for bird collisions. So think grassland birds that are out there, larks and sparrows. Joella, thanks for all this fascinating stuff. Thanks, Ryan. Joella Bauman is a CPR Max Wysick News Fellow answering a Colorado Wonders question about geese. What do you wonder about? Let us know at CPR.org and we'll seek out the answer. (laughs) 
In Colorado Springs, there's a yellow truck parked outside the home of Heather Oklaus. She calls it Little Miss Sunshine, but it's more than a truck. It's actually a pinhole camera. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explains why Oklaus is obsessed with turning everyday objects into cameras. It took Heather Oklaus a while to find the right truck to turn into a camera. Then in 2012... Kodak discontinued one of my favorite rolls of film. And then I looked on Craigslist and there Little Miss Sunshine was. Like a big box of film. She saw that likeness as an omen and bought it. It's dark inside the truck except for a bit of light shining through a tiny hole in its side. It projects an inverted view of the outside world, covering much of the opposite wall. This is a magnetic wall. So I have tiny little earth magnets. And see how the wall is gridded out in 8x10s? I put darkroom photo paper onto that wall that way. 84 sheets of photo paper. I kind of love the world upside down. I love seeing it differently. I love thinking about the world differently. I think that helps me with my art making. Olklaus has been experimenting with pinhole photography for years, but she found support for her obsession when she first participated in Worldwide Pinhole Photography Day in 2005. She used an empty soda can to photograph the contents of her fridge. She went bigger each year for the event, eventually building her way up to her pinhole camera truck. And I think since I am photographing real life, whatever that is, I want it to be close to life size. She learned darkroom photography in high school and found working with actual film addictive. 30 years on, she still loves the process. Every place I ever lived after that had a darkroom in it. I set that up before I set up a kitchen or a bedroom or anything when I moved in. She's particularly hooked on pinhole photography because, after all this time, it still surprises her. Art forms that do that to me is what I'm kind of chasing after. Old Klaus says she can turn just about anything into a pinhole camera. And the object inspires what she photographs, like when she made a camera out of an iPhone box and used it to take selfies. Her basement is full of stuff. A recipe card box, old pots, colander, all waiting to be transformed into pinhole cameras. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner, hoping your 2019 is off to a good start. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. This is CPR News.